Welcome to the Disciple Dare, a four-week series to challenge you to discover what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. More info on the Disciple Dare can be found at ViennaSDA.org. Pastor Jennifer Deans shows you through stories from the Bible how living the dare will give you hope in troubled times and joy in life. In this message, Who is God? For those of you who don't know, Paul is a very interesting guy. And um, his history is a little speckled. He was out killing Christians, and somehow he is now the leader of evangelists to the Gentiles. Well, um, Paul had a, a way about him that people either loved him or hated him. And so he had been visiting some cities, and they were trying to kill him. And so the Christians in that town said, Paul, you've got to get out of here. Go to Berea. And so some Christians in the middle of the night grab Paul, and they drag him away, and they take him over to Berea. And there he starts talking, and he, you know, hanging out with people, and the same thing happens. These Christians, um, or some of the Jews that weren't Christians, decided they wanted to get rid of Paul, and so he's rushed off to Athens. And he is sent ahead because Silas and Timothy were with him on this particular journey. And so he's sent ahead of Silas and Timothy, and he's hanging out in Athens by himself. And so what is a good Roman to do in Athens by himself? And so he starts wandering around, and as he's wandering around Athens, he can't help but notice the amazing, beautiful architecture. There's so many beautiful buildings that have gone up. It's, it's just a thriving metropolis. And as he gets to Main Street, he begins to walk down the Main Street. And in the Main Street, I've actually been there, there is little booths that every, like, 10 or 15 feet is another little portico or booth, and it is a shrine to a different god. There is gods all over the place. Athens prided itself on being the religious hub of the then-known world. It had every god you could possibly think of. And so Paul is there, and he is walking around, and the more he looks, and he sees a god for fertility, and a god for the sun and the moon, and a god for the harvest, and a god for this, and a god for that, he starts to get very disgusted. How can they be so messed up? And so what he does is he, he heads to the synagogue first, and he goes to the Jews, and he starts talking with them and sharing with them. He shares his testimony. You guys, you have to understand, I was just like you. I hated the Christians. Why would anybody want to be like that Christ? And then I met him on the road. And he changed my life. And he can change your life too. And he begins to share from Scripture, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, showing how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Afterwards, he leaves the synagogue, and now it's during the week. And so he just is wandering around the street, and he walks up to a group of people and says, Hey, how you doing? By the way, did you hear about that that Jesus person. And he begins to share with anybody who will listen. And in Athens, they were known to just debate over the newest, most interesting religion. And there's two different groups of people. There's the Echaperians. I might be saying that wrong. But basically, they believed in no gods. They're a bit atheistic. They believed that the whole purpose to life was pleasure. So if it makes me happy and if it feels good, that's what I need to be doing. So their God became pleasure. 
And so as Paul's walking up, he sees a group of the Ecuperians fighting with a group of Stoics. And the Stoics were very hardcore, hard-node religious people that had a very pantheistic view of life, a view of God. There was a God for absolutely everything, and they had rules, and if you broke the rules, you got the consequences. And so these two groups of people are having a heated debate out in the middle of the street, and Paul walks up to them and says, what you talking about? And so they share with him, and they're talking about their side and their side. And Paul starts off with, I see that you are very religious in many ways. In fact, as I've walked down your street, I see there is a different God for everything we can possibly think of. And they're like, yeah, so? He's like, you know what? I noticed something. You even have an altar with the inscription on it to the unknown God. And he's who I'm here to tell you about. It's so cool. I actually, when I was in Athens, I, I did, took a class and we went to Turkey and Greece and I was in Athens in the ruins. You can actually see the altar, the ruins of all these different altars, and one of them says to the unknown God. The Athenians were so worried that they might miss something and they might make a god angry, that they lumped every other god they couldn't think of in this one altar, and they would sacrifice and they would do stuff to this altar just to cover their bases, just to make sure they didn't accidentally irritate one of these gods. It was so bad. I was in a museum. Like, if you had an earache, people would create a, an ear, and then that ear would become a god, and they would pray to the ear so that their earache would go away. They had gods shaped like all sorts of things. Um, you hear about the Olympians and the Titans. Those are the bigger gods. But then they had this array of other gods. And they were so worried about missing just one. And so Paul, he walks up to this group of people and he starts talking with them. And um, <laughs> he kind of irritates them a little bit. And so they drag him to the high court in the land. And this high court, the high council, was where you went if you had really messed up religious-wise. And the high court looks at Paul and he says, All right, tell me what you're talking about. We need to decide. And so Paul says, I'm here to talk to you about the unknown God. The God that you don't know anything about. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. That's page 899, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to start... We're going to start in verse 24. And actually the end of verse 23, it says, To the unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't live in a man-made temple. 
One thing that you have to know about the Athenians back then is they debated and they debated who created the world and how it was created and they couldn't come up with where the gods had come from, who created them. And so there's this big question of where did, where did life start? I mean, the gods created us, but where did the gods come from? And they couldn't answer those questions. And so Paul starts out his, his little sermonette. By saying the God whom you are talking, whom you worship as the unknown God, he is the creator of everything. He created the worlds. And so he gets their attention. Because a little bit earlier, if you look at just a little um, bit up there in verse 18, um, the end of verse 18, it says, um, the Stoics and the Echoperian philosophers call him a babbler trying to convince them. And what they mean by that word babbler is they actually mean one of the, the dregs of society who walks around the street and picks up scraps and then tries to sell them to people. And so they're basically saying, Paul, you're some guy who's gone around picking up scraps of religion and you're trying to sell it to us. This Jesus person you're talking about, you don't have any idea. And so Paul is laying the foundation as he's talking about God. He says, the God... That you worship as the unknown God. He is the creator of everything. He made the world and everything in it. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. This is a slap in their face because they have temple after temple after temple after temple after temple after temple for gods they created. And so he's saying, first of all, you can't figure out who created the world. Well, I can tell you. It's my God. And he doesn't live in man-made temples. No one can contain him. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need. If you guys know anything about the Greek gods, they had very humanistic needs. And if they, those needs weren't met, then you are in trouble. You had to please them. You had to go above and beyond to make sure that you didn't please them. I was reading about one of these gods and the goddess of the forest or something like that. Someone came upon her and saw that she was beautiful and looked at her wrong. And so she turned him into a stag and then his own dogs ate him out of vengeance because, and this is in Greek mythology. And so Paul is saying, listen, this God, the unknown God you're talking about, you don't really have to be making sure that you're covering your bases with him because he doesn't need you to do anything for him. In fact, the opposite is true. You need him because you can't live, you can't move, you can't breathe, you can't do anything unless he gives you the power to do it. And as they're listening to him and they're talking about this God, okay, it's totally a mind-changing shift for them. So he doesn't need me to figure out how to please him, but I need him. And then Paul keeps building. He says, from one man he created all nations throughout the whole earth, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determines their boundaries. The Greek gods were constantly fighting for power. They're constantly fighting for rulers, rulership, and they would overthrow each other according to Greek mythology. 
And Paul's saying, this is a very different picture. It's a very different understanding from what you understand. Our God, the God that I'm talking to you about, he not only doesn't have to fight for his dominion, he has it, but he gets to decide when and where everything else happens. He got to decide that you're alive today. And he's talking, and as he's talking, this view, this picture begins to unfold of an almighty and all-powerful God who doesn't need us, but he wants us anyways. It says in verse 27, His purpose, God's purpose, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. It's talking, Paul's talking about, some of you guys have gods in your homes. You have to walk down the street if you don't have a god to bring them the appropriate gifts. And he says, the god I'm talking to you about is very different. He is right here. And his purpose for you is for you to find him and have a relationship. And so as he's building this picture of God, he goes from the fact that this is the creator of creators. He doesn't need us. He doesn't live in man-made temples. He, He runs the course of history. And he wants you to find him. He wants a relationship with you. Who is this God? What else do we know about this God? As we talked about earlier, there's, we're, we're part of something so much bigger than any one of us individually. We're part of a great controversy, a war between good and evil. And we, we found out last time a little bit about who Satan was, what he, his plans for us were, and what he wanted to do with us. He just wants to prove that we'll curse God. He just wants to prove God wrong. And if we become pawns in the process, he doesn't care. Well, the picture that Paul is painting to this high council is very, very different. It's very, very different. What do we know about God? Now, Paul would have gone on, and as he's talking, except for he brought up the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And when he brought up the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that started a debate so big between the council and everybody else that he just had to step off. But what if the debate hadn't started? What else is important for us to understand and comprehend about our God? First of all, how many of you have heard the word Trinity? Most of us have, okay, how many times is it found in the Bible? Is that a three or a zero? Okay, (laughs) all right. The word Trinity is found absolutely zero times in the Bible. It's not there at all. So where do we get the concept of the Trinity? And the reason it is important is because God desires a relationship with us. And the best way to understand God is in relationship. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's on page 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And I want you to listen as God um, 
kind of describes himself. And I want to pick out a few things and I want you to tell me what they are. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image to be like us. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What stands out about this, about God, not about humans? From this verse, what stands out in the way God describes himself? It's plural. God describes himself as plural. Okay, so are we like the Athenians who believe in a pantheistic view of God where there's just all sorts of gods that conquer each other? No. Let's look in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and that's page 152. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And if you see a little star in your Bibles, you look down at the bottom, because one of the things about the New Living Translation Bible is it will often um, politically correct things. And so it will, anytime it changes something about the way it was originally written, it puts a star there, and it tells you how it was originally written at the bottom. So if we look at the bottom, it says, or the Lord our God um, the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is telling us, so we just heard in Genesis that God describes himself in the plural. He uses the term us and our. And then in Deuteronomy it tells us that the early believers, the Jews, believed in one God. So how can, I mean, and where God describes himself in the plural is part of the Torah. It's one of the things that the Jewish believers saw as most holy. It's the first five books of the Bible. And so they would have obviously known this. So how, how do we wrestle with the fact that God describes himself as plural, and then the Israelites say that he's one God? Well, let's see how Jesus referred to himself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter um, 28, verse 19. That's page 808, Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look at verse 18, or verse, verse 19. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how does Jesus describe himself? He describes himself plural. So we get kind of a a conflicting description here in the Bible. And one of the ways that you create a doctrine, which is what the Trinity is, it's something that we piece together a learning from different parts of the Scripture. You have to make the different things mesh. And so, as we read and as we learn about the Trinity, we understand that there is one God, but they're seen in three persons. Why would God do that? Why would he be so confusing? How big is God? Can you answer me that question? 
How big is God? How complex is God? He, I mean, he's so big. And so God is so big and so awesome and so power, and he's a dichotomy of things. When he describes himself as awesome and mighty, and you're not worthy to stand in my presence, but yet he's Jesus, and he wants to be right there, that's kind of polar opposites. You know, you can be your friend, you can go, hey, Jesus, how you doing? It's kind of two extremes of God. And so what God is doing, he's like a rocket scientist who's trying to explain rocket scientry to a two-year-old because we're very limited in our understanding. I hope you know that. Our understanding is so small. And so this rocket scientist is going up to a two-year-old, and he's down on the floor playing, and he says, I'm a rocket scientist. And the two-year-old goes, and just kind of is sitting and playing with his toys. And so the rocket scientist picks up a model, you know, rocket ship. And he says, I build these. And the two-year-old's like, yeah. And he's like, well, I, you know, and so he takes him to, and they get a rocket model ship. And so they put together the, the, model, the model rocket. I can't say that word. And the two-year-old totally gets what the rocket scientist does now, right? No, he has a concept, his best understanding that a two-year-old can understand after playing with toys And that's pretty much what God has to do. He's got to dumb himself down for us so that we can get a concept of who he is. And one of the best ways that God can explain who he is, because he's sometimes so polar opposite and he functions so differently, is to describe himself in three persons but as one God. And sometimes it's really hard to wrestle with that. And one of the best ways that I can explain how that works is kind of like water. What are the three phases of water, the three forms of water? Solid, liquid, and gas. So we have ice, steam, and water. But when you break them all down, they're still H2O. You can get wet from all of them. The analogy breaks down a little bit after that. But God is like water. He is, he is different forms. He's different tangibleness that we can interact with. But he's still the same being and still the same person. So let's look at, a little bit into what each one of these... Um, persons of God is. First, God the Father. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. That's page 936. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. It says, Then all things are under his authority. The Son will put himself under God's authority. So that God, who gave his son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. First, we start out with a picture of God the Father as utterly supreme. He is the God above all gods. All the authority he's given to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they are under his supreme authority. He, when you think of the God in the Old Testament and the God talking, we're talking about God the Father. He is the supreme first God. Let's look at 1 John 4, 8 to learn a little bit more about who he is and what defines this aspect of God. 1 John 4, 8, which is 1002. 1 John 4, 8. We'll start in verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. 
For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Often we, we think we have to learn how to love God better. You know, like the Athenians were trying to please their gods, we often fall into the same trap. We try to love God the way we're supposed to love God and do all the right things. And what we have to understand is until we know God, we don't know how to love God because he teaches us how to love because God is love itself. You can't describe love without describing God the Father. And so everything that God the Father is, he's supreme, he's overall, he's worthy of our praise. He's love and he cares deeply for us and he wants that relationship with each one of us. In Exodus chapter 34, turn there with me, Exodus chapter 34, it's the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, and I forgot to write the page down, so hang on. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which is page 75. This tells us a little bit more about God. Exodus 34, verses 6. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love on thousands of generations. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations. What does this tell us about God? God is fair. He is just. But he is also merciful. He lavishes love and mercy on generations, thousands and thousands of generations. That's a pretty cool picture of God. But what about the second part of the verse? Where does that come in? Um, But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parent upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations. How can a God of love do that? We have to understand the distinction, the difference here. The first part of the verse, God is talking about those who love him and have a relationship with him and who've given him permission to work in their life. The second part of the verse is people who choose to not be part of his army, not be on God's side. And God will never force himself on any one of us. And so think about it. If um, a mother on heroin gets pregnant and um, is abusing drugs and doing all sorts of other stuff, and the baby is born with birth defects, are the sins of the mother being passed down to the child? Did the child do anything to deserve it? No. When our sins go unchecked, when we don't have God in our life, we don't give him permission to stop the decisions of our parents. If you are a child of an alcoholic, it is more likely than not that you will become an alcoholic yourself, unless God intervenes, unless something happens. Because without God in our lives, our sinful natures, our sinful traits, naturally pass themselves down to each other. Just think of sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and how many of you asked to be part of a world of sin? I I sure didn't, but that is something, that's a cause that got passed down because someone went unchecked. But God offers hope. He says, listen, I'm, 
I'm merciful, I'm loving, and we don't have to live with the sins of our parents. We just have to give our lives to God, and he can help us overcome anything, even the biggest obstacles. And so God the Father, as we look at him, we see the all-powerful, almighty, loving, but just God. And it tells us in John 14, verse 9, that it, if you know Jesus... You know, God the Father. So even though God describes himself differently, there's an overlap. So who is Jesus? Who is he? Let's look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse, um, page 860. John chapter 1. And we're going to read the first three verses. John chapter 1, 860. It says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was God, and the, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and, he created, and God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So what's that all about? Who's the Word? Well, if we read a little further, look at verse 14. It kind of helps us decipher this um, tongue twister a little bit. It says, So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So who is the Word? Jesus. So Jesus is the one who became human. So what does this tell us about um, this? Many people... Other religions think that Jesus was a good person, or he was actually God's son, and so God created him. This tells us that the word, or Jesus, already existed in the beginning. So before things started, Jesus existed. So he had no beginning. He, he existed before the beginning. It says Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. So this goes back to the whole concept of the Trinity again. We, we have to understand that God, the Father, and Jesus are one and the same, but they're different personas. And God used Jesus as the creating force of the Godhead. So Jesus created everything we know, which is why Jesus had to come and die. Because he was our creator. Although all the Godhead was invested in creation, Jesus was the creator himself. Let's look, look at Colossians 1, verse 15, and page 961. Colossians 1. Galatians, Ephesians. Colossians 1.15. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before everything was created and is supreme over all creation. It says that Jesus' purpose was to be the visible image of the invisible God. And so, none of us have seen God the Father but we can get a picture of what he looks like and who he is by looking at Jesus. We get an understanding. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, um, page 936. 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 Corinthians 15. 15 verses 3 and 4. This is key about who Jesus is. It says, I pass unto you what is most important and what has also been passed unto me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, and he was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. So Jesus, he's the one who died for our sins, and he's the one through whom we can have salvation. As I was studying, I came across a document that is really cool that I'm going to um, have available later on. Um, did you know that Jesus, there's over 360 prophecies about Jesus in this Bible? Every single one of them came true. Over 109 of those prophecies, it would be impossible for you to create on your own. You can't dictate where you're born or who, what line you're born in or other things. And it's it's amazing to see that Jesus, he was predicted, God knew, and he foresaw Jesus. It wasn't an accident. God didn't randomly say, okay, Mary, the kid you have, I'm going to dub him as my son. No, Jesus was intentional. He was on purpose. Just as the scriptures predict, Jesus died and he rose again. He is our source of salvation. So we have God the Father, who's the big overarching God, and we have Jesus, who's our source of salvation. He's the visible image of an invisible God. And then we have the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do for us? Let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. So the next book over, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. What is, what is being talked about here is Moses, when he went up out on Mount Sinai, he got to see God's back. And because of that, for the rest of his life, had to wear a bag over his head because his face radiated God's glory. And so what this is talking about is, listen, when we come in contact with God, our veil is removed and people will see that. And what is the source of God that people will see? It's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit doing in us? He is changing us to be like God. So the Holy Spirit becomes like our conscience. As we listen to him, he changes us and helps us to become more and more like God. That's why the, it's often said the unpardonable sin is grieving the Holy Spirit. Because that means, basically, if I ignore the Holy Spirit... I'm ignoring the source of God that is calling me to himself. And our sinful natures are so opposite of God that we can't come to God on our own. We have got to come through the Holy Spirit. The only way we're going to be good enough, the only way we're going to make the right decision is when we listen to the Holy Spirit. He's the one who changes us into the people we need to become. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit, um, let's look at Second Peter 997, 2 Peter verses 1, chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 
It says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came about from the prophet's own understanding or human initiatives. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So the Holy Spirit is the one who made sure that over hundreds and hundreds of years that this book could be compiled so that we could learn and we could know about God. And so as Paul is in Athens, if they hadn't stopped him, he would have gotten to share this amazing dichotomy, this amazing complex nature of God, a God who is awesome and we're not worthy to be in his presence, but he came down and he lived and he died for us, the lowest of the low, And he is the God that wants to know each one of us. He desires that relationship. And he uses the Holy Spirit to draw us into relationship with him. As Paul is there in Athens, he's talking to people about something they don't know. And at the very end of the chapter, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. The very end of the chapter... It says, in the midst of it all, at the end of the chapter, um, Acts chapter 17, page 901, verse 32, it says, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That Paul ended the discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Didymaeus, the member of the council, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. The beautiful thing about this God in the middle of this great controversy is he wants a relationship with us. And when you realize that he is the God who created everything, like Paul shared, when you realize that without him you can't live, you can't breathe, and the beautiful thing about God is he still allows you to breathe even if you don't want to know him. And so, as Paul was saying, this God that created everything, who is the big, awesome, almighty God, who's our Savior and our Redeemer, who's the one who calls us into a relationship with him, he's the one that gives us life and the ability to function. He is here, and he is longing a relationship with us. When we realize that, we want to know more. The beautiful thing is, when the Holy Spirit's working. We want to know more. In Exodus 34, 14, it tells us that God desires a relationship with us. And he promises us in Jeremiah 29, 11, that if we seek him with all our hearts, we will find him. God says, I will be found by you. So God is right here, but he's never going to force himself on us. He is so close that you can touch him But unless you want that relationship, he is not going to force it. But he is calling you. So I'm here today to tell you that the unknown God in Athens is the only God that matters. He's the only God. There is no other God. There's nothing else that we need to put in our life. Our first and only focus should be God the Father. We need to be like Matthew 34, Matthew 13, 44. Turn with me there. Matthew 13, verse 44. Matthew 13, It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. 
In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the fields. That is what God is. When we discover this pearl in the middle of a field that we don't own, that we don't know enough about, what he wants is for us to not hold anything back in our life until we know him and we love him more. We need to have that kind of dedication. So my question for you is today, the dares that are on your sheets are, I dare you to believe in a God, one God that manifests himself in three persons. I dare you to believe that this God is the author and sustainer of all our lives, that without him, even if we're cursing him, we can't live and move and breathe. He is the only God that matters. And I dare you tonight to begin to pursue a relationship with him. He promises that if you seek him, you will find him. You've been listening to The Disciple Dare from Pastor Jennifer Deans. We hope this message encouraged you as you learn to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you'd like to learn more about how you can take the dare, drop by ViennaSDA.org. There you'll find resources to get connected to others like yourself and to help in your spiritual journey.